You're listening to a Market Moves property podcast from EG. I'm Tim Burke, EG's Deputy Editor. We're talking about the commercial real estate lending market during the past year of the COVID-19 pandemic and what happens next. Despite limited signs of distress so far, it seems likely more is coming. Many industry figures remember all too well how the great financial crisis hit the market. But with a more varied array of lenders and greater liquidity now, will this crisis be different? How are lenders working with existing or new borrowers to ensure responsible deal-making during the next stage of the pandemic? I was joined to discuss this by four guests. John Carter is Commercial Director at the Bank Aldermore. Peter Kosmatatos is Chief Executive of Crefsi Europe, the trade organisation for the commercial real estate finance industry. Joe Solomon is a partner focused on real estate finance at the law firm Hogan Lovells. And David Yedden is Executive Director at SPF Private Clients, which offers real estate debt advice. Peter kicked our conversation off. In his role at Crefsi Europe, he's speaking regularly with lenders of all types and sizes, and I asked him to give us a snapshot of the finance market a year into the pandemic. I would say that the the early stages of the pandemic um, were obviously a huge shock for everyone, but on the lending side of the industry, there were a couple of features that made it very different from anything that we've recently experienced in terms of cycles. The first thing was that the scarring, the emotional scarring that many lenders suffered in the GFC had meant that there had been a very good legacy of, firstly, um, caution and discipline so that lenders came into this crisis uh, well prepared in the sense that that there hadn't been over lending, there hadn't been excessive exuberance, there hadn't been kind of foolishness. Secondly, the GFC had led to a much more diversified market and that meant that We've got a variety of different sources of capital. There's lots of different ways of accessing commercial real estate and indeed commercial real estate debt. And that has added resilience to a market and meant that as certain types of lender pull back, others have been able, have been waiting in the wings and willing to come forward. And I think those things have stood us in really good stead. Having said that, I think we started the crisis with um, a period of everyone waiting, everyone not knowing how long it would last, but hoping it would be short. And so that meant that the natural response of lenders was to show support to their borrowers fairly broadly um, by waiting. So suspending some of the normal protections that lenders would use. So covenant testing, scheduled amortization payments. Um, but but very rarely were there cases of actually people having to restructure loans or um, restructure interest payments. So I think where we've got to, though, is that lenders um, know that 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 approach of waiting and allowing their borrowers space can only go on so long. And it's been rolled and rolled and rolled for the last few quarters. And I think we're approaching a point where lenders are simply having to re-underwrite loan by loan, asset by asset, and make decisions about who they're going to support uh, and who they're going to uh, treat as non-core and have to take some sort of action. Uh, and I think that's inevitable and it'll be quite varied across different sectors. Yeah. And it'll be quite varied across different lenders. Uh, and, and and the precise timing of that is quite uncertain. But I think probably during the course of this year, there will be quite a significant kind of washing out of, you know, a sorting of the good and the bad and, and actions being taken by lenders. The other big difference is that what we saw in the GSE was this panic that sets in almost immediately 
And a lot of, um, you know, as Peter said, it was a huge proportion of real estate financing was concentrated in a very, very small number of lenders. And so once those lenders were paralyzed, the whole market just seized up. And a lot of those lenders then cut their teams hugely. Um, and usually at the senior end. So what you ended up having with teams who had actually never been through that particular cycle of the market, they didn't have the institutional memory or the experience to deal with that kind of crisis. And I think that's very different to the position that we're in at the moment. So one would hope that we've got um, calmer minds at the helm it, within the uh, the lenders who are not going to panic and perhaps take more um, of a long-term view. And I think that does that does have a big impact on how the lenders are treating their borrowers across the board. Though I do agree, um, I think we are very quickly coming to a point where we can't carry on with the extend and pretend, which was something that we had um, in the GFC as well. Um, and lenders are now starting to look at, you know, which of their borrowers should we support and which of their borrowers perhaps were already in trouble. So if we, we talk about retail, that was a sector that was always already struggling pre-pandemic and this really has been sort of the nail in, in the coffin and I think you know most people would say that there's a lot of um, retail that, that's just simply not viable anymore and how the market deals with that, the real estate market not just the real estate finance market how we deal with that section of the industry is going to be quite interesting to see. Yeah I think when we look back at the first impact of the pandemic going back to end of March it was a real knee-jerk reaction everything stopped very very quickly and suddenly and you know that was across I think all real estate lending even on construction not that there was suddenly the, the funding lines dried up on construction but there was concern about labor being pulled off sites there was a concern about supply chain and you know we had a couple that were actually uh, just about to close which were put on hold but things came back relatively quickly uh, which I think evidences the strength of liquidity just generally in the market and particularly on construction sites, mm. particularly on, on things like residential development. So it was only a hiatus really for about four weeks once we got through the immediate alarm bells of you know construction teams being, being hauled off sites and it was quite evident that the government endorsed construction to continue. Lenders I think eased up a little bit and uh, some that had been put on hold we managed to complete within a couple of weeks thereafter and I think that was probably the same for you wasn't it John you were originally concerned on particularly on construction just the impact on the supply chain um Joe you're quite right about the, the retail position which was 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 really suffering anyway before the pandemic and yeah it's just it's added on to that but then again there are sections of retail and this is the danger about referring to retail mm. but there's sections of retail which have done incredibly well throughout the pandemic mm. if you look at the food stores for example individual food stores you know, they probably traded their socks off and and certainly we're not having a problem uh, financing uh, good quality uh, food store investment opportunities so it's it's almost little bits of the sectors uh, I think are suffering more than others uh, and we can come on to talk about the hospitality sector in due mm -hmm. course but John just that immediate impact was was short sharp and sudden wasn't it going back to last March just just to put it in context we had a very high percentage of our borrowers that approached us quite quickly um, and I think it was the the surprise and shock David as you said and and actually we had quite a lot of calls from people just assumed 
because of some government um, messages that they were entitled to three months of no, no payments of anything. So it's actually just managing that one, first of all, managing that message. And I think it's a hard thing to do because, you know, as I said, it's completely unprecedented. But the, a big percentage of our borrowers are really um, proactive, contacted us early. And by that very nature, it just meant we had to um, move a lot of resource to support those existing customers. And that must be the same for lots of other banks as well, which I think was what happened. We also had something like 150 plus transactions in course, in progress. And we just had to triage those and go through them. We actually completed on most of them, but some didn't go forward. And some of that would be because the borrower rightly stepped back a bit and just said, is this the right time to be doing this? Um, and, and I think just kind of picking up in the comments, Peter made on Joe, you know, global financial crisis, the bank's balance sheets were were in trouble then. It, it, it's a very different um, example now. And um, Peter will know this from the, the stuff that's now in CAS reports, but would have been in the De Montforts previously. Average loan to value is much higher. Average debt service cover ratios are much lower. Um, so, I, you know, I think the banks have, through changes in regulation as well, and changes in risk-weighted asset categorization of underlying assets, there's a lot more strength to to banks' balance sheets now, so they can work through that. And and we, like I'm sure most other banks have done, have been really keen to work and support our existing customers through this. And and I, I think we will come on some of those sectors, as David said, that uh, we mentioned earlier on retail. David's absolutely right. We, we've actually separated out retail to non-essential and essential retail. And I think essential retail, no, no worries, nothing to see here. <laughs> as, as David said, it's traded much stronger than it ever did before. Um, and certain other sub-asset classes, because of that change, and especially over the last 12 months, has, has been really key to seeing certain other subsectors perform quite well. In April last year, we, we kind of made a plan of a flex risk appetite, really planning for the planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And I'm glad we did because it just meant that we've been really relevant as we've gone through the market. But retail, Joe covered on earlier on, non-essential retail, this has just accelerated some of the issues that were already flush, being flushed out in that market anyway. Take us through what that plan looks like, because I yeah. mean, I was thinking back to when, when you and I last spoke on a podcast, John, it was early last year, we we knew we knew of coronavirus. It, it didn't feel like nearly the risk that it became. I remember us talking about plans for MIPIM, for example. Yeah. But when but when we entered the you know when we entered the crisis there so rapidly, what became your priorities? And maybe take us through what that that plan in April mapped so out. Think, so, so, so what I did, we worked worked through the team and really looked at for, for one of a better phrase, those areas we thought were COVID nineteen resilient. So essential retail was one of them. And you could start defining what essential retail was looking for because of the government guidelines about what could be open and what what was not allowed to be open. So you could kind of, you kind of focus in on that. Um, and this is for looking at new deals only, Tim, where we're supporting our existing customers. Um, residential, which we're already building it anyway, was still fine. And actually, from a property development perspective, David touched on earlier on, we've, we've seen really strong sales in our property development book. Um, they were more affected by um, Brexit or threat of Brexit and getting in a government into play. And sales of residential were really pushing very strongly when COVID hit again. So it was a short bump, as David alluded to earlier on, but then it started to come back again. Um, so that development space, we haven't changed our, our parameters on that at all. We've just stayed the same in terms of that. 
warehouse industrial logistics again that that penetration online sales penetration which we discussed before uk was already very strong clearly it's got stronger um and that's where the non-essential retail kind of gets hit a little bit because it's a movement of of how distribution happens in those sectors in terms of sales so so really it was a, a paradigm shift in the sector market anyway it's just about planning when how you play forward but we also discussed him and i think there's still opportunities here is repurposing them some of the the assets that may be non-essential because we do have a shortage for example of last mile delivery assets in terms of the online sales which we, I, I know we discussed in the podcast last time and there's still opportunities there but it takes investment it means someone's got to have the plan get the planning and put it yeah. into play but but that has to play out. We also look to places like um, elderly care, which, um, yes, there's been lots of, of headlines about that, but ultimately it's a needs-based sector. And and so the, there is demand and there is demand for that. So it's somewhere you can play because it has a long-term, still has a long-term need in terms of going forward. Yeah. And we, we've, we've also um, brought in some new areas. So we've, um, we've actually just complete on our first ground rent deal, for example. So ground rent deals are not affected by COVID. They're affected by other things like leasehold reform, which was coming through. And we, and we were planning for that in terms of how we've done it. But it's still an asset class that has an income stream and you can lend on. So we're, all, we, all we were doing was trying to kind of flex towards the areas we thought there would still be some transactions that we could play to going forward and reflex or, or re, reassess where our business was kind of focusing towards that. And that stood us in pretty good stead, actually, now in terms of where we go. And Student was one of those places that we just said, look, we need to be careful with it. And Dave, Dave and I have done quite a few of these in the past. Um, but we, we were always being careful before. Um, in the very early days, it was almost if you build it, they will come. It's really not like that now. You have to really pick out what's being built, which which town, city, and where's yeah. the price at. Yeah, location is key. Exactly that, Dave. And so, but there's still a market to play to there. And yes, look, there's going to be some short-term cash flow impacts given what's just been happening. Um, but that's going to come back, I think, quite strongly as well. So we were just focusing on areas that we thought logically would play out. And we've kind of held back on some other areas, such as offices for now. It's not a case of I don't think offices will not be needed. But I think they will. But I think the utilisation of them will look different. And I just know from our, from our own business how we've worked, we've not really utilised them much of the last 12 months. And I'm sure lots of businesses will be reflecting and looking to, to flex how they work going forward on that basis. As there'll be a need for office, I've no, I've no doubt about that. But it'll look different from where it's been before. So and uh, now is probably just a bit too early to call on what I think that might look like. We're, we're not an equity player, we're a senior debt yep. player. So it's not for us to make that equity call. And, and leisure and hospitality, and, and David will know this, we, I, we'd actually probably timed it right in some ways. We had a policy to come out and start lending to hotels very selectively, yeah. which we which we haven't actually gotten in our books. And probably that's the perfect timing. It's not that hotels won't come back, but they may take a bit longer to come back than anybody imagined last March, Dave, I think, is, is a reality. Yeah, it will take a while. But just generally, I think that the biggest variation from the financial crisis is there's a lot of liquidity out there in terms of both from uh, from equity purchasers waiting to deploy and and some of those have been prepared to deploy during the pandemic but from a lending perspective 
perspective, you have a whole raft of types of institution which are very well capitalized. Debt funds, they've raised their capital, that needs to be deployed. The challenge of banks such as Oldermore, very strong balance sheet, very little legacy issues wishing to deploy. And there's a few other challenger banks of a similar ilk. Um, and then you have these specialist funds also in, in developments. So there's no, no shortage of supply there. European banks in the main have remained open uh, generally for business. Obviously, it varies on a sector by se sector appetite. Insurance companies very well capitalised, once again, wishing to deploy. Uh, and I think even with our UK clearing banks, they are very well capitalised. They are able to deploy and willing, but I think they have been sidetracked looking after mm existing clients immediate uh, cash flow uh, positions the c bills facilities they've probably been bogged down on those so they're not i don't think just generally uh, wanting to take on too many new to bank clients and new to new to bank uh, opportunities at the moment but they are still open selectively so a lot of liquidity i think everyone has quite naturally focused on their existing clients and their existing books it's just that for the big clearers the scale of that exercise is Indeed. such that inevitably it's just going to distract an awful lot of resource that might otherwise have been pointed at a new business. And, it, and it's others with smaller existing books that have been able to dominate in the, in the new lending space. Well, this is what I was going to ask. If I'm, if I'm a new borrower, how tough is the battle for me to build a new relationship to access new finance at the moment? I think it depends what sector you're in. Um, if you're in logistics, then I don't think you'd have any problem at all. But if you're in office, I think uh, a lot of lenders are taking a more cautious approach. I completely agree. I don't think anyone's writing office off. And I think, ironically, if the, if lockdown had ended three or four or five months ago, then there may have been more of an appetite to say, well, do we really want to go back into the office as much? But because it's gone on so long and I think everyone is so fatigued, we really are appreciating the value of being in, in the office. Um, but I do think that it's quite it's too early to tell. I agree with John. It's too early to tell what is going to happen with office. You've got, um, you know, figures in the industry saying we're going to go back to exactly the way things were before. Um, and others saying, well, no, there has been a shift. There has been a permanent change, um, you know, open plan in uh, just after a global pandemic. Does that seem inviting for people? Who knows? Um, so I think if, if you're in office, it's a different kind of thing. Um, I agree that, you know, that the contrast, I think, between the debt funds, you've also got um, a flatter approval structure, maybe compared to some of the more traditional lenders who've got maybe more layers of, of credit sign off um, in terms of deliverability and, and the length of time it, it takes to close transactions. Um, there may be a perception that debt funds are, are speedier, more nimble. Um, but again, I go back to the point that I think it depends on the product that you've got. Um, and again, we keep contrasting back to the GFC. I think one of the mm. other differences is that I think there's there's been so much more of a focus on the fundamentals of real estate and people are lending against real estate as opposed to my perception pre-GFC was that real estate had almost turned into a form of financial engineering. And we'd almost lost the fundamentals of real estate. And does this property actually stack up? Do the returns mm. stack up on this property? So again, that that's a different thing. But I think one thing that's really challenging, uh, and, and it, it's, we've not quite grappled with the real implications, is that one of the big accelerating trends that we've seen over the last 10 plus years is the increasing operational intensity of real estate. More and more of the traditional sectors have a significant operating component. And the, the push towards more turnover-linked rents on the high street, 
the growing relevance of serviced office and flex so you've got less long long rental certainty as it were uh, in office the growing importance of the, the the traditional operating sectors like built to rent and hotels and students and care homes and all of that all of those trends together don't sit entirely comfortably with a, a lending approach or indeed an investing approach, which assumes long secure income. You just need mm. to be able to underwrite the covenant strength. You've got no recourse to the underlying business. You've got no access ultimately to the team that is managing the asset and generating that, you know, that continuing income and income growth. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that we've quite figured out how valuation and real estate investment and real estate um, lending kind of economics and underwriting and risk man management fit with a growing uh, operational component in what asset performance really depends on. John, do you have, do you have any thoughts on how we square that circle, as it were? I, I, I do, and and, uh, and David and I have spoken about this a few times. I think it gets back to that really um, important bit about banks aren't just lending on numbers. It's not a lending by numbers game. It's actually you're backing management team you're backing experience and so you do need manual intervention but that manual intervention needs to have a skill set and understanding and and i think that's where we start differentiating between where some of the bank's offerings may be or debt funds or others is that just down to the people who they're facing into in the lending organization that can one um, understand that and and create a debt solution rather than a product, a debt solution that sits around someone's strategy. Uh, and two, can articulate and get and obtain the approvals for that internally, and then document and manage it thoroughly. Because it's not anyone, and I say this regularly, anyone can come up with any loan-to-value terms and pricing, but you've actually got to manage it in life as well. So I think that's where it comes back to it, Tim, is the, is the because these become very long-term partnerships, property lending to the point you're making here, Peter, it's never a short-term game. It's a medium to long-term plan. So any any lender needs to buy into that management team and buy into their strategy um, and back them with it as well. That, that's what they're there to do, to back them going forward and work with them. That that kind of that point around relationship and partnership, I think, is incredibly important in in this kind of environment where, you know, I often say to my borrowers, if they're concerned about what a lender's intentions are, whether a lender is going to continue to support them. Um, I often say, well, if the lender's going to look at you and think, well, there's no one else that could do a better job with this asset, whether it's a development or whether it's just a dry yeah. investment, then why would they go elsewhere? Why would they choose to go down an enforcement road? And you need to be transparent with your lender. If there is a bump in the road, you need to tell them about that so they, they maintain confidence in you as a borrower and as a management team of the borrower. So that kind of that sense of partnership is is absolutely key. And I think, you know, particularly now, if we're thinking about what lenders' intentions are, this has been going on for so long, are they going to start taking more aggressive steps? I think one thing they will obviously need to consider is, well, if they do, what's their exit? Is there a market for some of these assets? And I think in a lot of cases, perhaps there isn't. But also, you know, it's no small thing to embark on an enforcement. What's the upside? If you're looking at your borrower and you're thinking, well, the market's awful at the moment, but there's nothing else that anyone else could be doing to improve this particular situation, I'm going to continue to back you. Where where are we seeing the clearest signs of distress in the market at the moment? I feel like there will be some obvious answers to this, but interesting to to talk through them. Peter, maybe some some thoughts from you on 
where we are seeing where we are seeing signs of distress begin to emerge. It feels like it's a kind of slow burn at the moment. But what are you what are you witnessing? So, so on the, specifically on the lending side, I don't think we've seen very much distress at all. You know, there have been one or two obvious big cases like into falling over, but for the most part, there's been very little. Um, but it is building up because we can see that in the real estate market, there's been very considerable distress, most obviously in the high street, in the non-essential retail, leisure and hospitality sectors. That's the, the, the sort of, um, that, that's the centre of the storm uh, and has very obviously been because of lockdown uh, policies. Um, the, the real challenge, I think, will come through what people's assumptions are about what's going to happen with rent arrears that are built up particularly under the cover of the moratorium. There will undoubtedly be businesses that survive and businesses will fail. Uh, at the tenant level, a lot of landlords haven't been able to do the sorting because of the moratoriums. And so that's all ahead of us. Uh, and gradually that'll filter up to, to the lenders. I think in the last couple of months, people have started talking a little bit more about the likelihood of some level of distress, which will be a much slower burner still yeah. in the office market. It's all about selection. Um, there will be parts of office, parts of student, parts of all these other sectors that are going to be absolutely fine and indeed are going to prosper. And there are going to be other parts that 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 are much more vulnerable to obsolescence and um, unfundability. And I think the real challenge is going to be around those assets, you know, obviously starting with shopping centres and the like, those assets that where people can see the way through. And so that they are financeable and they can reprice and they can change hands and then you can move on. And those ones where it's much, much harder and where, you know, assets will only be able to trade on an equity only basis because lenders just don't want to go there. Mm. And and the, and the journey is harder uh, and the revaluation is, is 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 a more difficult process. John, Aldermore was was built in the wake of the financial crisis. Does an event like this, does a crisis like this, open an opportunity for new entrants? Would we expect to see, if we think about how the market shifted over kind of the decade plus since the GFC, would we expect to see shifts in the wake of what's happening at the moment? Is there an opportunity here for, for new companies to launch, new new ventures to appear? I think I think it does. With any change, it always creates some opportunity. Um, and I think there's no doubt about that, Tim, but it's not... Um, Creating a bank isn't an overnight thing, really, as well in some ways. And and I think D- David's point's a really good one about liquidity. Liquidity was tight when when Oldham was founded, and many other banks found at the same time. Think about um, there's two or three other um, challenger banks that would have been founded at the same time. And and liquidity really wasn't ample at that time. Liquidity is really strong at the moment. So I think there are opportunities, but you're coming into still a quite busy and competitive market. And there'll be spaces for people to find a niche. Um, I think Joe answered the question earlier on about where do you find finance? I think in certain subsectors, if you really understand them well, I think there's probably some very good opportunities because you're, you're looking at entering into the market probably after a rebased valuation and people's expectations about what they may get as support are more realistic. There may well be some opportunities. I think, you know, as we move into more of a distress situation in whatever sector falls into that category, you'll probably find um, those lenders popping up that are more focused on that end of the market that haven't perhaps been quite as busy in, in the last few years. So it's going to be really interesting to see those with a more aggressive strategy 
um, popping up and whether we see that, for example, you know, the, the volume of NPL portfolios that we saw post GFC, I'm not quite sure whether we'll reach anywhere near those levels this time round, but there certainly will be some. Yeah, rather <laughs> surprisingly, we, we've, we've seen some new entrants in the debt fund market just in the last few months. And some of those are actually aiming at more more difficult and challenging sectors like like leisure, like hotels. John, when do you think banks, lenders generally, will start looking at testing covenants once again? Because I say it's, they've almost been entirely waived for the last 12 months. That can't continue. And perhaps just from a regulatory perspective, what's what what does a lender what what's the what what do you think the, the lenders need to do there? Well, I think actually to be fair, Dave, we've been guided by the regulators in this. So you think about forbearance and government support that that's that's all been guided and led by that as well so the so the point is that the government and all its machinery be it the regulators as well have been there to help support the banks to support borrowers as they go through this so i think it's it's more about the timeline of exit and velocity of exit coming back out of the other end of all these lockdowns and um i, I think any any views on that, Dave, will will kind of evolve based on the 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 exit strategies that come out in terms of lockdown. Because the what yeah. once that once that eases, and you know we we discussed earlier on, that clearly the areas that are more affected are those that haven't been allowed to trade. So the the, the ones that are allowed to trade is how how you see the the pattern of that coming back out of there. John, can I ask you how how much of an issue is it? Do you think for for you and and not that I'm asking you to speak for all lenders, but um, in terms of reputation and enforcement, given the guidance that you know we should be supporting the lender should be supporting their borrowers, there are obviously going to be situations where it's just not feasible to do that, and you're looking at the underlying business and and seeing that it's not viable. Um, but how much of a deterrent to enforcement do you think reputational issues might be? Hmm. I mean, it's it's always there, Joe. You know, as I think you said earlier on, no, no bank takes that kind of action lightly, um, and and sometimes it's taken actually with the with the agreement of the borrowers as well. So I I think it's 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 in, in some ways I kind of say this: we should act the same way now as we would anyway. <laughs> the, the decision process you go through is is no different. Um, you're always looking at the reality of, of whatever that structure or workout is going to be um so it's it's not it's not a decision that any bank would take like that i can clearly only speak for us um and you know for a lot of those sectors we talked about we we don't have a huge amount of exposure in them but fundamentally you work with the borrowers i think you said earlier on when borrowers flag up this is what we're doing this is how we're going forward you work with them there's a plan to exit um I think I think the point is, and the question probably getting to is, is do borrowers understand that as well now? It's probably just thinking about where where is their exit plan, and um, there has been a lot of government support, C bills, B bills, um, and we we've seen that actually from a lot of, of borrowers that we have where they have been supported, but they will do in other banks as well. So I think the government have done whatever they can do, and and in general done a pretty good job of this is try to get funding to keep businesses going through this because it has been an enforced time of no trading. Peter, did you did you want to jump in? 
Yeah, so there, there are two points that I'd make about what it is to be a responsible lender uh, during this crisis. So one, one point is that the PRA guidance that had come out about supporting borrowers was primarily or possibly actually entirely based on how lenders should be treating their retail borrowers. It was not about wholesale business. And many lenders interpreted it kind of by extrapolation as sensible guidance also to, to apply for their wholesale business. But it's important to remember that it, it really was about retail customers, not big business customers and commercial real estate lending. Mm-hmm. And I think partly that was because you know, the, the Bank of England at the time could see that actually commercial real estate finance was not a burning platform. You know, there were other parts of the economy they needed to worry about more. And the banks in particular were pretty well positioned in terms of dealing with commercial real estate distress in for the, for the sort of near near to medium term. Um, so that's actually a good thing. But it's, it's just important to remember that, that yeah. you know, we, the focus was very much supporting retail customers. The second point is that in order to be a, a, re, a, a responsible lender in this crisis, it is not just about supporting your customers. It is also about ensuring that you're protecting your business. So, it, you know, and we know that from the GFC. It, it would have been a strange message for policymakers to give to banks in particular um, that actually they should throw away all their underwriting. They should stop worrying about credit and management of risk and just support their customers. Because the truth is, we know that this crisis is is revealing and ex- and, and accelerating um, a lot of structural change in the underlying market, and there will be businesses and assets that don't recover and don't come back. Um, and it is right that lenders should be able to use their judgment and manage their books and decide what is core and what isn't, and which assets and which borrowers need to be supported, and which shouldn't be, or the different action is is needed. Um, so, so I think it, you know it's a balancing act. Um, mm-hmm. I agree with everything John said, actually. You know, and uh, and the importance of managing those relationships and what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, the partnership and the importance of the sponsor and the sponsor's character, business plan, transparency, all of these things, super important. But we've got to remember it's it's a balancing act to lenders. If you're a senior lender in particular, your job is is not to just be supportive. You need to be supportive, but also have regard to your own investors. And, and the stability and, and the and the resilience of your own your own book and your own your uh, your, your own assets. A balancing act indeed, and one that it is likely lenders large and small will continue to face as we enter the next stage of the challenges brought about by the COVID nineteen pandemic. Thank you to my guests for joining EG for this podcast, and thank you for listening. Remember. You can subscribe to all of our podcasts on your preferred platform and head to egi.co.uk to keep up to date with all of the latest real estate news, features, analysis and data.